Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, How Did You Happen? Richard Wright. 2021 was not a year that will be remembered fondly by most people, but it did see the publication of a new novel by Richard Wright, a rather unexpected event given that he died back in 1960. It is a longer version of a story that already appeared posthumously shortly after his death. Entitled The Man Who Lived Underground, it tells the story of a black man scapegoated by the police for a murder he didn't commit. He escapes custody and flees to the safety of the sewer system, from where he is able to spy on the city he has left behind. His grip on the values of the surface dwellers, and on his own sanity, gradually slips away, something epitomized by his decision to use stolen cash to wallpaper his subterranean lair. It's a simple plot, but one that stands for a complex set of ideas that stayed with Wright throughout his career. Alongside his most famous novel, Native Son, and a further novel which is tellingly entitled The Outsider, it explores the idea of claiming freedom by rejecting the norms and expectations of society. You may already be able to guess at one of Richard Wright's main inspirations, namely Fyodor Dostoevsky. He called this Russian author the greatest novelist who ever lived, and the title of his novella echoes that of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. Such allusions were a habit for Wright. The main character of Native Son is Bigger Thomas, whose first name is obviously meant to evoke a racial epithet, and whose last name may invite a contrast with Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom. The same novel features a communist lawyer named Max, only one letter away from a certain founder of socialist thought. In The Outsider, the central figure's name is even more on the nose, Cross Damon, whose name juxtaposes the Christian faith of his family with the demonic amorality that this character will come to embrace. At any rate, Dostoevsky gave Wright more than a book title. He provided a model for expressing philosophical concepts, and especially concepts associated with existentialism, in fictional form. Similar inspiration was supplied by French writers of Wright's own time, for example Albert Camus, whose 1949 existentialist novel L'Étranger was translated into English under the title of, you guessed it, The Outsider. Though Wright's own book, The Outsider, published in 1953, is often thought to be the clearest document of his existentialism, the classic existentialist theme of individual freedom and authenticity is already present in Native Son and The Man Who Lived Underground. The main characters in all three works become outsiders as they flee from what passes for a civilized authority. The underground man is innocent of the crime of which he is accused, but this is far from the case with the heroes, or anti-heroes, of Native Son and the Outsider. In Native Son, Bigger Thomas takes a job as a chauffeur for a rich white family, whose daughter Mary perplexes Bigger when she and her communist boyfriend, Jan, express naive sympathy and solidarity with black people. His reaction is the same as that of Wright himself, who said of his first encounter with white communists, I was cynical and I would rather have heard a white man say that he hated Negroes, which I could have readily believed, than to have heard him say that he respected Negroes, which would have made me doubt him. Bigger is humiliated when, in a bit of high-minded tourism, 
Mary and Jen, make him eat with them in a Negro diner. After they get drunk, Bigger winds up in Mary's bedroom, trying to help her into bed to avoid discovery he smothers her with a pillow. This more or less accidental murder, along with a brutal and very intentional second murder of Bigger's girlfriend and accomplice, is a turning point in Bigger's life and self-understanding. As Wright, in his guise as narrator, says, Never had he had the chance to live out the consequences of his actions. Never had his will been so free. Bigger has freed himself from the blindness that afflicts others by refusing to obey the norms of a society he has always dimly understood as his enemy, a world in which white people don't even let you feel what you want to feel. They kill you before you die. Indeed, he now realizes that he has gone through his whole life intending violence against this society. He had killed many times before doing so literally, and had been no less guilty before his dreadful deeds than after. As it is put succinctly at one point in the novel, Bigger had always felt outside of this white world, and now it was true. It made things simple. The same journey of realization is described in The Man Who Lived Underground, in which the main character says to himself, Maybe anything's right. Yes, if the world as men had made it was right, then anything else was right too. Any action a man took to satisfy himself, theft or murder or torture, was right. We should not assume, of course, that Wright was trying to encourage theft and murder by writing these books. What seems clearest is his desire to show how violence and amorality can be provoked by oppression. Among the many currents of thought swirling into Native Sun is the sociology of the Chicago school. We saw how that school, and especially its leading theorist, Robert Park, influenced E. Franklin Frazier. The same goes for Wright, who said that sociology gave him his first concrete vision of the forces that molded the urban Negro's body and soul. This was in the introduction Wright provided for St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton Jr.'s sociological classic, Black Metropolis. In the same context, he said that any reader who doubted the reality of Bigger Thomas should consider the data found in this book on delinquency rates and family disorganization, the latter, of course, a favorite theme of Frazier's. As this suggests, Wright broadly accepted the Chicago school's contention that structural factors were preventing black people from integrating successfully into wider American society. In Native Son, Bigger's first murder victim, Mary, and the communist lawyer, Max, are both made to voice findings of the sociologists. The plot also turns on such phenomena as the Black Belt in Chicago, the main area in the city African Americans were allowed to live, where Bigger hides out after his crimes. So one can read Native Son as a depiction of the way that racist societal structures inevitably corrupt those who are subject to them. Ironically enough, though, the mere fact that Wright was able to produce it seemed a counterexample to this very thesis. He had grown up poor in a brutally racist environment in Mississippi, and in his autobiography, Black Boy, tells of how he managed to escape from this environment through determination and guile, to become a man who was, in the words of Paul Gilroy, the first black writer to be put forward as a major figure in world literature. The idea that Wright was a one-man disproof of social determinism was bluntly expressed by none other than Robert Park. As an elderly man meeting Wright in 1941 after Native Son made him famous, Park insisted on rising in his honor and then asked bluntly, how in hell did you happen? For Ralph Ellison, the book was open to criticism on this basis. He pointed out that 
Baker could not possibly imagine Richard Wright, yet Wright had imagined Baker. Wright himself denied that the book was intended to convey a deterministic moral. I don't mean to say that I think that environment makes consciousness, he explained, but I do say that the environment supplies the instrumentalities through which the organism expresses itself. Wright made this comment in his essay, How Bigger Was Born, included as an introduction in later editions of Native Son. Here he alludes to his own childhood, where he encountered the first of a series of bigger Thomases in the form of a schoolyard bully. Perhaps we have another meaning of the name here. This was literally one of the bigger kids. Through his formative years, Wright encountered characters who rebelled against the white world, ultimately fruitlessly, but with stubborn insistence on their own autonomy. The adult versions of Bigger Thomas in the South would defy Jim Crow laws, and the whites who restricted their lives made them pay a terrible price. Native Son is the answer to Wright's question why some black men become a Bigger Thomas, an answer he was only able to understand once he left Mississippi and went to Chicago. As he remarked in Black Boy, I was not leaving the South to forget the South, but so that someday I might understand it. In a previous book, a collection of short stories called Uncle Tom's Children, Wright had portrayed victims of oppression while still valorizing the moral worth of Black solidarity. But as he says in How Bigger Was Born, he came to regret this concession to sentimentality. If I ever wrote another book, no one would weep over it. It would be so hard and deep that they would have to face it without the consolation of tears. That book was, of course, Native Son, in which, as Wright himself observed, the main character is utterly disconnected from traditional Black culture. Zora Neale Hurston, as a scholar of Black folkways, had already accused Wright of failing to appreciate the richness of that culture in her review of Uncle Tom's Children. She wrote, One hopes that Mr. Wright will find in Negro life a vehicle for his talents. This has encouraged several scholars of African-American literature to contrast Hurston and Wright, usually at Wright's expense, because of what is seen as his insufficient loyalty to Black culture. But again, Wright's position is more nuanced than that. Here we should consider his 1937 piece, Blueprint for Negro Writing, written in the years leading up to his publication of Native Son. Wright himself identifies church life and folklore as the main sources of traditional Negro culture, and connects them to what he calls nationalism. We have, of course, seen many times that African Americans were sometimes seen as forming a nation within a nation. Wright even has the communist lawyer Max allude to this concept in a lengthy courtroom speech towards the end of Native Son. But for Wright, nationalism is something to be first acknowledged, then transcended. As he writes in Blueprint, a simple literary realism which seeks to depict the lives of these people devoid of wider social connotations, devoid of the revolutionary significance of these nationalist tendencies, must of necessity do a rank injustice to the Negro people and alienate their possible allies in the struggle for freedom. But nationalism is not enough. Its straightforward political manifestation, whereby Americans of African heritage should establish a literal independent nation within North America, a prospect entertained by Claudia Jones and many other communists, or in Africa itself, a prospect eagerly anticipated by Marcus Garvey, Wright considers simply childish. That ambition is embraced by none other than Bigger Thomas, who naively imagined a leader coming along to do for black people what Mussolini or Hitler did for their people. 
as a more vague, perhaps emotional urge, nationalism is more respectable in Wright's eyes, but it is ultimately just another manifestation of oppression. An intense feeling of separate identity among black people is, says Wright, a special existence forced upon them from without by lynch rope, bayonet, and mob rule. He thinks writers should instead articulate a new way of life, one that goes beyond both the traditionalism of the masses and the parasitic and mannered values of the black bourgeoisie. And again, we may detect an obvious parallel to Fraser here. One thing Wright clearly rejected in black culture was religion. His heroes struggled to escape the smothering embrace of a faith tradition, typically embodied by a female character, Bigger Thomas's mother and native son, Wright's own grandmother and black boy. There is no such maternal figure in The Men Who Lived Underground, but in one memorable scene, the hero hears a church choir singing gospel on a far side of a wall and thinks, don't do this to yourselves. In The Outsider, we have yet another pious mother who raises Cross Damon to imagine a god whose face is a huge and crushing no, and whose love seemed somehow like hate. Of course, Damon goes on to reject this Christian god, and to this extent at least, Damon's development is presented as a form of progress. What did Wright propose as a replacement for traditional folk culture then? His remarks about this in Blueprint are intriguing, though rather vague. Perhaps alluding to Du Bois's advice that black authors should write with a propagandistic purpose in mind, Wright says that in his view, the goal should not be propaganda, but rather perspective. Thus, one might call to attention that disadvantaged African Americans are part of a global working class. This sounds like the remark of a communist, and at the time, it was. Like so many of the figures we've discussed recently here on the podcast, Wright was a socialist. He joined the Communist Party in 1933 and wrote for the journal Daily Worker. But he ultimately split from the party in 1942, after a sequence of events detailed in an angry and rather entertaining piece called I Tried to Be a Communist. He wrote of his attraction to the movement in the following terms. It was not the economics of communism, nor the great power of trade unions, nor the excitement of underground politics that claimed me. My attention was caught by the similarity of the experiences of workers in other lands, by the possibility of uniting scattered but kindred peoples into a whole. But he found out that there was at least one problem with the Communist Party, the other communists. The white party members he met were unable to understand the notion of a self-educated Negro, while black communists considered him to be putting on airs, saying that Wright talked like a book. He broadly shared the party's goals, but could not reconcile himself to following their orders. When he left, he gave a speech in which he assured his about-to-be former comrades that he was seceding not for ideological reasons, but just to avoid being bound by the party's decisions. As he puts it in this essay, I wanted to be a communist, but my kind of communist. And elsewhere, he said that he remained collectivist and proletarian in outlook. Another brief but informative document on Wright's attitude is a preface he contributed to George Padmore's book, Pan-Africanism or Communism. We have already met Padmore a number of times, most recently in our episode on Oliver Cox and Eric Williams, and he will continue to play a part in our story because of his involvement in the independence movement in Ghana. Wright praises Padmore in this preface as the greatest living authority on African nationalism, but Wright has his own insights to share. 
he uses this opportunity to explain the failure of most Black people to embrace organized communism. Owing to racist oppression, they see things through an angle of vision held by oppressed people, that of people who look up from below. He cites here Nietzsche's idea of a frog's perspective. From this perspective, it is difficult to imagine forging alliances with white communists, for the Negro's fundamental loyalty is to himself. Indeed, black people have been right to view the movement with skepticism, since too often they have been used by communists for ends that were not theirs. These same attitudes are expressed in fictional form throughout Native Son. The white communists are presented in fairly positive terms, with Max's lengthy, elaborately ideological courtroom speech summing up the themes of the novel, which doesn't exactly fit with Wright's own advice in Blueprint that too great a load of didactic material means that the artistic sense is submerged. Yet, these same communists routinely fail to connect with the black people they are trying to help. Bigger says of his interactions with Mary, white folks and black folks is strangers. We don't know what each other is thinking. When the communist, Jan, comes to the jail to offer Bigger help, he seems to admit that no political ideology can bridge the color divide, saying, I'm a white man, and it would be asking too much to ask you not to hate me when every white man you see hates you. Such passages seem a counsel of despair, which leads us to another line of criticism that has been aimed at Native Son, namely that it offers little more than a nihilist warning of the violence that emerges from oppression. The most acute example of this response was given by James Baldwin, whom Wright supported when he was a young writer, but who still did not hesitate to attack the limitations of Native Son. Or maybe he did hesitate, but if so, he went ahead anyway. Baldwin acknowledged that Wright was onto something, conceding that no American Negro exists who does not have his private bigger Thomas living in the skull. But things are more complicated than this and less bleak, because one can also subdue this dark and dangerous unloved stranger. While Wright makes us feel both pity and horror at the awful and inevitable doom of bigger, a monster created by the American Republic, he ignores the resources available for avoiding that doom, whether through self-control or support from the black community. Baldwin's verdict is thus that Bigger is Uncle Tom's descendant, the one uttering merciless exhortations, the other shouting curses. For the modern-day audience, there's a connected feature of Wright's fiction that may be still more troubling, its depiction of women. And here we want to warn listeners that in what follows, we're going to be talking about sexual violence. Wright can seem to be so focused on the violence of black men that violence against women becomes a mere symptom. Part of the problem is that his women characters are quite often, as one critic has put it, childlike, whimpering, and stupid. And we've already seen how Wright habitually associates women with religious faith, which coming from him is not a compliment. Worse, though, is the fate of such female characters as Bessie, Bigger Thomas's girlfriend in Native Son. Before he murders her and tosses her body down an elevator shaft, he rapes her, thus doing to her what he is falsely presumed to have done to Mary before the first murder. Wright describes Bigger's feeling about that false accusation as follows. Rape was not what one did to women. Rape was what one felt when one's back was against a wall and one had to strike out. He committed rape every time he looked into a white face. This remark fits with the more general themes of the novel, yet it seems at best glib and at worst monstrous to allegorize sexual assault in this way, 
especially when the character at the center of the story is actually depicted as a rapist. There's no getting around the fact that this aspect of the work makes for uncomfortable reading, but it is important to remember that Wright is not Bigger Thomas. He does not seek here to justify rape any more than he seeks to justify murder. Also, we need to contextualize this aspect of the book within a history that we know well, having looked at it when discussing Ida B. Wells. Wright could be paraphrasing Wells's argument when he says in his essay, How Bigger Was Born, that if a Negro rebels against rule and taboo, he is lynched, and the reason for the lynching is usually called rape. Like Wells, he responded to specific cases of lynching, writing about the case of Willie McGee, who was put to death for raping a woman who was, in fact, just having an affair with him. As Wright said, the killing of one Negro was designed to serve as a lesson in terror to millions of other Negroes. Furthermore, his fiction drew on knowledge about the situation of black women. He had interviewed many domestic workers during his time as a communist journalist, and he portrays Bessie complaining of her own plight as such a worker. He also understood how violence against black women was callously and routinely ignored. Native Son emphasizes that Bigger gives no thought to Bessie after murdering her, but is only concerned that he might get caught for killing Mary. The white legal system, meanwhile, considers the killing of Bessie to be relevant only as evidence that Bigger treated the white woman, Mary, in the same way. Women do not fare well in The Outsider, either. The basic plot in this case is that Cross Damon is able to start his life over when it seems he has been killed in a subway accident. He abandons all his relationships, including those with his pious mother, hectoring wife, and pregnant teenage girlfriend. Damon goes on to act as if he were a little god, committing several murders. In a rather sinister echo of Du Bois's metaphor of the veil, Damon sees himself as one of the few who had thought their way through the many veils of illusion. Like Bigger Thomas, violence has set him free, but left his life without meaning, apart from whatever meaning he can forge for himself. Cross had to discover what was good or evil through his own actions, which were more exacting than the edicts of any god, because it was he alone who had to bear the brunt of their consequences with a sense of absoluteness made intolerable by knowing that this life of his was all he had and would ever have. Wright thus captures the exhilaration of infinite possibility, coupled with the horror of a life with only self-imposed constraint that was a hallmark of other existentialist thought. Maybe man is nothing in particular, he writes. Maybe that's the terror of it. Man may be just anything at all. Though The Outsider has obvious continuities with Native Son, it is less focused on racial injustice within American society than the earlier novel. In fact, Wright said that its hero could have been of any race. This may be connected to the fact that it was not written in America. By this time, Wright was in exile. He moved to France at the invitation of the anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss after having corresponded with the American expatriate writer Gertrude Stein. Actually, Wright may have had the most impressive address book in the history of Africana philosophy. He was involved in the founding of Présence Africaine, meaning that he was a collaborator of Alioune Diop and the Nekotude thinkers. We've already seen that he was friends with George Padmore and his wife Dorothy, who invited him to visit Ghana in 1953, and in 1949, he had given a talk in Trinidad at the invitation of Eric Williams. He also knew and made an impression on many of the greatest French philosophers of the time, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. 
the poor kid from Mississippi became a truly global figure. But quite a few readers then and now have viewed the move away from the U.S. as marking a downturn in the quality of his writing. His novel of ideas, The Outsider, was felt to be overly didactic and far too bleak. Lorraine Hansberry said that it was written by a man who has seemingly come to despise humanity. A modern scholar has commented that Wright had cut the roots that once sustained him. His memory of what Negro life in America was had lost its relevance to what Negro life in America is, or is becoming. Whether or not this judgment is fair, Wright's departure from the U.S. did mark an internationalist turn in his thought. Traveling around the world and speaking to diverse audiences, he said that he aspired to transcend not just his American roots, but the very contrast between East and West, adopting what he called a third point of view. As the movement of decolonization swept Africa, he argued that inspirational leaders like the president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, were the best hope of the newly independent nations. Responding to the concern that the autocratic power claimed by many of these leaders might be abused, he admitted the risk, but he thought that Nkrumah and similar leaders had to use quasi-dictatorial methods to establish national unity, saying, you can't build a modern state out of tribal communities. He also maintained his antipathy to religion in this later period, hoping that rising secularism around the world would spread the spirit of enlightenment and reformation beyond Europe and North America. But this did not prevent him from seeing Islam as a potent unifying force, one that could offer an alternative to other geopolitical ideologies, like those contending in the Cold War. While acknowledging the shift in the context and themes of Wright's later work, we should not exaggerate the difference from his earlier philosophy. There was an inherent link between his universalism and the existentialist themes that run throughout his career. After all, the pure existentialist hero exists as a free subject before being any particular kind of person, this being the meaning of South's famous dictum that existence precedes essence. In his essay, How Bigger Was Born, Wright said that the type represented by Bigger Thomas was white too, and there were literally millions of him everywhere. This was a character who transcended national and racial boundaries. In fact, one could even argue that the outsider constitutes a development over Native Son, not by being more existentialist, thanks to the influence of friends Wright made in Paris, but by showing greater awareness of the limits of existentialism. At the end of The Outsider, Cross Damon cries out in regret, Alone a man is nothing. I wish I had some way to give the meaning of my life to others, to make a bridge from man to man. One wonders if this might be a last-minute embrace of the community values that many felt were deliberately excluded from Native Son. In fact, Wright's writings, both early and late, recognized and exploited the tensions we have so often observed in 20th century Africana thought, between the particular and the universal, between nationalism and assimilation, between the desire to belong to a group and the desire to exercise one's individual freedom. Perhaps this is part of what Wright meant in the lines that end his autobiography, Black Boy, where he describes his ambition as a writer. I would hurl words into the darkness and wait for an echo, and if an echo sounded no matter how faintly, I would send other words to tell, to march, to fight, to create a sense of the hunger for life that gnaws in us all, to keep alive in our hearts a sense of the inexpressibly human. This has been an unusually long episode, befitting the achievement and varied interests of Richard Wright, 
but our treatment of him has been only the first in a series of three installments on great mid-century Africana literary figures. The other two have both been mentioned in this episode for their critical engagement with Wright and especially with Native Son, Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin. They didn't always agree with Wright, but that doesn't mean they were wrong, the way you would be if you missed the next two episodes of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 